Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's where W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that is having so much fun. Okay, maybe fun's not the right word, but it's just having a really excellent time with Labor Month that I think we might have to stretch it a little bit into June. It's just the, the great stories just keep coming. I'm your host, Amanda. This is episode 76, and as I mentioned, it's Labor Month what other people like to call May. And I'm so excited about what's happening in today's episode. My special guest is Belinda of ethical clothing brand Belle Kazan, and she's going to share her story and the story of her brand, which drives to do things better and better when it comes to ethics and the planet. Belinda started her brand with a $1,500 loan from her dad. So I think this is going to be a super inspiring conversation for all of you small business owners out there who worry about how to grow the brand while maintaining your ethics and integrity. I I can't wait for all of you to meet Belinda. And before that, I have a work story about a particularly sour experience someone had working for a clean beauty startup. And I swear... Oh man, this story reminded me so much of my terrible experience working for a feminist retail startup that I needed to have a boozy seltzer while I was editing it just to like take the edge off. I think that story is such a great contrast to the way Belinda looks at her business, so I had to put them in the same episode. I'm just going to say now before I forget, keep your work stories coming. You know, when I ask myself, Amanda, what's the plan for Close Horse? Like, what's your focus? I realize my focus is educating everyone about how and why our stuff is made, starting conversations about our roles as consumers and workers, and being a conduit for sharing your stories. Our personal experiences create both our political beliefs and our personal ethics, and sharing our stories helps other people shape their own beliefs. And more importantly, sharing our stories helps others see their own experiences in sharper focus. I'm really excited by the possibilities of sharing all of your stories this month, so please keep them coming. You can email me at amanda at closehorse.world. You can call the Close Horse hotline at 717-925-7417. And if you do that, the voicemail will cut you off around two minutes, but just call back and keep talking. I will edit the messages together via the magic of technology. I do it all the time. 
Or you can do what today's caller did. You can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and send it to me via email. And that's especially great if you have a longer story. Now next, of course, I am required by the world of podcasting to remind you that if you're interested in joining the group of the coolest people ever by supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And of course, I'm grateful for all of the support all of you provide all the time, whether that's leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, sharing our content on Instagram, and, you know, just listening to us. I'm so grateful for all of that. Hello there, everyone. It's Carrie, the executive editor of CloseHorse.World, and I'm calling in to tell you about the exciting week ahead that we have planned on the blog. On Monday, Karen, an artist and jewelry maker, talks about how she is focusing on sustainability in her studio by choosing biodegradable supplies, eliminating the use of plastics in general, and using every scrap in her process. It's such a great reminder that mindful consumption also applies to art making. Speaking of consumption, Lydia is back on Tuesday with another installment of her column, The Parent Trash, to talk about how to avoid overconsuming when you're expecting a baby. She gives us a list of five baby things you won't need and five things you will need. And guess what? They aren't all material things. On Wednesday, coinciding with her appearance on the podcast, Alex of Ware St. Evans is putting on her vintage detective hat to tell us about the history of an American union-made jacket that Iris, one of our editorial residents, bought from a vintage seller in Mexico. There's a great story behind this piece. Iris is having a big week on the blog. On Thursday, we are publishing her story about an incredibly stinky jacket that she bought new on Amazon. Iris says this jacket had a punch-you-in-the-face putrid smell the moment she pulled it out of the box. Iris is a scientist, so she was determined to figure out what was causing the odor. Check it out. I want to remind you that June is Personal Style Month on the blog and the pod. If you want us to include a piece about your personal style journey, the deadline for submissions is Sunday, May 23rd. And a quick teaser, July is Body and Beauty Month. Mark your calendar. The deadline is June 19th if you want to submit something to us on this theme. And before I sign off, I want to give a special shout out to Kat, Iris, Phoebe, and Anna, our Close Horse editorial residents. They all did such a fantastic job shaping the pieces that we're publishing this week. If you want to work with our fantastic team, visit closehorse.world, click on Contribute, and follow the directions there. You won't regret it. All right, well, now that we've handled all the business, let's get into this work story from an anonymous listener who worked for an unnamed clean beauty startup. And like I said, this one gave me a lot of flashbacks to my own experiences. So where to begin when I want to tell you everything, but I have to put it in a nutshell. This was back in 2010. I've always, in my opinion gone around with a sort of neon sign on my head that says desperate to keep your job please keep me as your employee I'll work so hard and be grateful no matter what kind of thing even though I always knew from the beginning of things that it was not that straightforward there's way more than just being desperate you know there's all these creative talents I have that I have to leave at home 
in order to work at somebody else's space on their dream because I, for some reason, have never had the situation uh, where I've had that luxury to explore my own. I mean, I'm not special. That happens to a lot of people, most people, actually, right? Most people don't have that luxury. So anyway, in contrast to that, when I came onto this clean beauty company, uh, which will remain nameless, they were really small, and yet they had a little niche thing going. And um, I was their office manager, and right as I came on, they had gotten some big funding from this CEO woman, this new woman that joined the founder who had created the formulas. And this CEO really put a lot of juice into the company and it started taking off. Now, there were not a lot of employees it was me, the office manager, and I did way more than manage the office. Uh, I tended to customers that would come in and purchase things. I tended to online sales and communication and customer service and literal office management as well. And sometimes shipping, and sometimes I'd help bottle. Oh my God, yeah, juggling, right? So me, then there was not even a designated shipper at that point. Um, there was the woman who did the product, uh, the production, blending ingredients, sourcing ingredients, ordering, all that stuff, and um, quality control. And then there was the founder and the CEO. And for a while, it I think that was about it and then there were random people that would have to come in and you know bu buffer out the 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 shortcomings that that a burgeoning company would have and they did have them and it was awkward at times right and then as the CEO put more and more of her elite upper class yeah she was kind of wealthy as she, as she, you know, she had these connections. So as that started to flex, you know, I feel like the company got too big for its bridges too quickly. And it was unfortunate for those of us who held it up on our backs because it certainly was not the CEO and her connections that were holding it up. I mean, that was the infusion that pumped it up but we, the employees, were those who held it up. And it was freaking exhausting. Um, super exhausting. And um, she didn't seem worried at all going about her little charmed life, you know. She'd come up with, quote, bright ideas, end quote. <laughs> I knew she had not a clue of what what the ramifications would be for all of those bright ideas. And she would spew them out haphazardly. What did that really mean for the system that we had set up, which was nil, right? I, I was desperate to keep the job, but I also had a conflicting sort of thing, which is 
practical feedback that I offered up, I kind of can't help it. And that wasn't welcome. It was pretty clear to me early on. Um, I was indispensable too. So it was a weird situation, contradiction, because I knew I was desperate. And I think, you know, they pretty much knew I was desperate. But because I was a pleaser, right? But I also had a mouth on me, right? Not a mean mouth, but just I'm going to offer up the constructive criticism where I see the bottlenecks in the system. And the bottlenecks in the system were in my literal neck <laughs> because, like I say, you know, the, the, the company was starting to do well, you know, um, press in big publications like, you know, beauty magazines, fancy things like Vogue and, you know, a superstar here or there would say she was using the brand or, you know, things were starting to happen. They hired this woman that became uh, what a lifelong friend. She'll all know her and love her forever. And she became the designated shipper. And we just had the best time together because we both were suffering under, under all of this CEO's bright ideas and under her ego. Anyway, so um, this, this CEO lady... She, one time, you know, we had the conference room and you could see through with the glass, full, full length glass into the shipping where my friend used to do the packing and stuff. And I was on the other wall and I could, I could, you know, I could see through to the conference room when I would get up to go see my friend in the shipping and ask her questions about this package or that. And uh, one time I turned around and looked through the conference window and saw our CEO laying on the conference table getting eyelash extensions put on by a spa um, esthetician. And I was like, oh my God. So here we are running around, working our tails off, and here she is getting lash extensions, only to see her after she checks herself in the mirror to complain about, I don't know, I didn't think I really want, did I ask for them to be this long? I don't know. So, um, but the juxtaposition was just, ugh, barf burpee, you know? Like, are you serious, lady? Are you serious right now? Anyway, um, and you know, at another time she said to me, you know, you should really, you should come, you should come dog sit for me. We're going, we're going on a vacation, you know, you should really come dog sit for me. And then another time unrelated, why are you always smiling? Ah, like she was kind of annoyed by me and, and like, you know, because I, I, I have a cheerful disposition unless, unless you ask me to work too hard and don't respect me. And then after a while, I won't have such a nice disposition. But for a lot of the time, I had a, a kind disposition. And she's like, oh, you, you remind me of my husband when I met him. He's just always smiling, always smiling. 
in any way. I knew I got under her. I, 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 I grew to get under her skin somehow. Anyway, um, another dear friend, co-worker, used to do the production and she'd do all the blending of everything and she knew her stuff and she knew how the products worked and why. And she shared her opinions similar to me, you know, she always had feedback about how to improve things and systems and everything. And that, I guess, ultimately wore on the CEO because all of a sudden one day this woman is fired and there's someone in new to replace her. And the CEO takes me down the street. It's a big, big blow up. The whole place is just frazzled, you know, and we come together for a meeting and the CEO says whatever lie about this. And I don't know, but the, the woman that she fired was precious and is still, she's also a lifelong friend. Um, the kind of people you trust forever because they're that just that decent and that transparently perfect as far as being humane goes. Um, anyway, the CEO, she had this little meeting to whatever, you know, pretend that it had to happen for whatever stupid reason. And then she took me, I guess because she knew I was friends with the woman she fired, she took me down to eat at a local eatery, fancy, fancy, fancy pants thing. And she started crying like it was so hard for her what she just went through to fire the lady. And she was, she was sharing with me and, and needing me to comfort her. How's that for a frickin' twist, right? And it sickened me, but I, I was still so desperate to keep the job because I didn't like what had just happened. And I was rattled. And I said... You know, she, she was asking me, she was trying to basically groom me, probably. She was like trying to find out if, you know, was I going to basically choose? Was I going to have the right attitude and be able to keep going? Because she knew she was wrong. That's what was obvious. She knew she was wrong. And I knew she was wrong. We knew she was wrong. <laughs> Though everybody knew she was wrong. But I said, well, you know, I'm able to see that you had a thing with this worker and it ended this certain kind of way, but I am the kind of worker that is able to stand back and look at the bigger picture and, um, and keep on moving. Now, I needed that job, but she had just fired one of my besties and I was pissed. And here she was crying to me. I worked there a couple years under that CEO and it increasingly got more and more popular. The brand got so popular, too popular. And, you know, we had only barely hired another two or three people after that. And the time came to move. The, the facility was too small and this lady's britches were so big, you know and she could have whatever she wanted because she was independently wealthy and this was just for fun, I'm thinking, and for ego. She said she wanted to give me a raise one day and 
she said, yeah, we want to raise you up to blah, blah, blah. And it turned out to be, it was like a quarter or, or 50 cents less um, than I already made. <laughs> so I was outraged, right? And so I went and I asked for a meeting with her and the founder and I was like, uh, I do this, this, and this. Because at that point, I was like, okay, I'm desperate. But all of us know I'm high value here. You know, I, I am balancing this stuff like, you know, an acrobat with plates, you know, a circus act. I am carrying the weight here, right here. And not single-handedly, but I am carrying the weight. And customers all globally are loving me and calling in in first-name basis. And I mean, my coworkers and I get along. Everything's great except for the workload and the bottlenecking because this CEO and her bright ideas without any sort of understanding of what it takes. So I, I ran it all down and, and, and that was where the line in the sand was drawn and I was never going to be able to be working with this woman peacefully again. She definitely hated me after that. Um, she did not give me a raise. Uh, I, I said, you know, you know, I already make such and such amount more than you just raised me to. You didn't even know how much I freaking made. You freaking louse. <laughs> in my mind, of course, I didn't say these things. But I said those things, you know. And... She, yeah, she never raised me up. It was, it was despicable. It was disgusting. And she took a long time to raise my other friend up, uh, who was the shipper, whose back all of the shipments globally were going. Just her alone. And um, she wasn't even making a living wage. And I was barely making a living wage. The time came to move. And um, she knew that I didn't have a car. I used to live up the street. I would just walk to work or bike to work. And she knew it was going to be hard for me because there was no way public transportation would go across the bridge to where we were going. It was far enough away. It was just not going to happen. And I was pissed at the work. You know, I was like, they want me to quit. And I was like, I'm not going to quit. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to quit. F these people. And uh, a family member helped me get a car. And I started driving out to this new place. I helped them move, you know, reestablish this business uh, way across the water over the bridge to the other city. It was miserable, but I was just, you know, pretending because I was desperate and used to being desperate and being professional while desperate. But this lady, you know, I, I had held on too long and she did not think that I was going to get a car and drive to this new place. She thought she was going to have all these new people in this wealthier area. and She was going to hire fancier looking people or, you know, less gritty people, people in her sort of affluent uh, level. So she one day just decided she was going to tell me I was fired. And I had just gotten back from the funeral of my grandmother in New York. And I get back. My coworker had flowers on my desk for me. I'm, you know, tearful here and there, getting my hugs. And then like a day, maybe a day or two right after that, I got fired. 
and the CEO wouldn't tell me why. And I was like, oh, hell to the no. I, I became professionally livid. And I said, oh, no. I did not just work for you for two years to have you not even tell me what I did. I have never had a complaint. What is the complaint? You know, she just didn't want me there. It was clear. This little rich biatch. She just did not want me there. And I said, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. And I literally said that. I said, no, you're going to, we're going to walk across the street to the office, from the storefront to the office. You're going to walk with me. And I told her this. I said, seriously, specifically, I said, you are going to walk with me across the street. We're going to have a meeting. And you are going to tell me exactly what I did to get fired. And it felt like I was their teacher. Uh, it was a, another woman that was worked with us that was on her side, one of her she-she people uh, who lived in the same city as her. So this was their turf. And I walked them across the street as if I was like the, their teacher and they were in trouble. And I was bringing them to the principal's office. I sure did. And I walked them and I sat them down and um, they could give me no good reason you know, she's like, you're not happy here. It's palpable. And I was like, no, you're going to have to tell me what I did. Like, what is it? Is there a conflict? She was scared of me. <laughs> it turned out she was scared of me. And I'm glad she was. But at that point, I was still desperate because I knew, you know, I wanted to be laid off and whatever it was the terms were she was giving me, you know, she had it all set up with her lawyers and she had all the paperwork already drawn and it was just a disrespectful shit show, you know, it was so disrespectful and I was so hurt, but I mean, I shouldn't have been because it was like the writing was on the wall for, you know, ever since she was laying on that conference table getting her eyelashes done while we worked around her um, and could see her through the window. The writing was on the wall but I was hurt. In any case, fast forward, so I went on unemployment and um, mo I moved, you know, whatever, my life kept moving and I moved to uh, a different state and put that job in the back of my mind, whatever. I just tucked it away. Stayed friends with my lifelong friends that I'd made from there. And um, then, then I learned that that business had a schism and the CEO had a fight with the founder and they were no more. And the original name had done so well that the, f the founder formulator kept it and the CEO went on and made her own brand, which actually is huge as well now. So both of these brands are big. Um, I learned all of this because, uh, I don't know, it was maybe three, three years after I had been fired, the original founder formulator um, was reestablishing and she she had one of my dearest co-workers that had also been fired the one who the CEO had cried to me about um, she called me and was asking me hey 
we're we're rebranding uh well same name but we're rebranding and we want we want you to come work with us can you work with us i said yes i can but i don't live in the state anymore so uh they hired me remotely and i still work for them and the brand is doing swimmingly well and um it's not like oh it's happily ever after because that's not my brand and i am still just a worker but they have treated me quite well. I don't want to say, ooh, it's great, but like I'm a desperate worker still, you know, um, trying to build my own things in the environmental sector, uh, carving out my own niche in that regard. And it is the other side to some of the podcast uh, themes you've had where, yeah, where is the time that I get to carve that out for myself as I scrape scrape by helping to make somebody else's brand big but i'm grateful i always say that i'm grateful and i'm glad that i am valued that's that's my story and um one day i hope to no longer need this job um, i've been wanting to not need it for a long 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 time but I'm always exhausted at the end of the day and um, find it hard to carve out my niche. Um, but I'll be darned if I give up. I'm not giving up. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to record this story, anonymous listener. I was corresponding with her, this anonymous listener, and she said some additional wise stuff that I want to mention. She said, isn't it a trip that the feminist storyline some brands use for their brand identity is not lived up to at all? Just like your experience, we were all women in the skincare job, and they bragged about that all-female team all the time. But they were some of the most backstabbingest folks ever. No kind of elevating one another ever happened there. Just like other foul choices employers can make, it doesn't have to be this way. Bad business is a choice. Let's say that again. <laughs> Bad business is a choice. And it's true. Now you can see why I wanted to pair this with my conversation with Belinda, who has made good business a choice. It's not always easy to do things the right way. Perfection is always out of reach. But when you value progress over perfection, the right thing over the easy thing, you make the choice to have a good business. And I think that is such a great transition into my conversation with Belinda. So let's just jump right in. Belinda, why don't you introduce yourself? Because you're going to do a much better job than I can. <laughs> Hi, my name is Belinda Kazansi, and I am the creative director and owner of the brand Bel Kazan. And I was really excited when you reached out to me because this is a brand that I know, and I think that some of our listeners will know, maybe a lot of our listeners. And, you know, I actually at previous jobs had wanted to bring this brand in because I really like what you're doing and how you do it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's like a, that's a rare thing in 2021, you know, it's very special. How did you find yourself working in fashion? Was it your lifelong dream? Like, were you the little kid who was like making clothes for Barbie or did it, did it just kind of happen? Because a lot of guests 
on the podcast. It turns out it happened by accident. Yeah, I'm one of those it happened by accident people, I guess. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've been a musician my whole life and was very focused on music and, um, you know, made a lot of the costumes for stage when I would be performing and, you know, always into fashion, um, heavily into vintage, um, even as a, as a young girl, um, in college, I would just go thrift store shopping nonstop, um, and just collected, basically spent a lot of my, um, college money, especially loans on vintage clothing, <laughs> which I shouldn't have done. This is a feeling that I understand. And I think that um, a lot of people listening are like, yes, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, I would take that, you know, $5,000 check. And there was this amazing um, vintage store in San Luis Obispo, which is where I went to school called Second Time Around. And I would just blow a lot of that pretty quickly. Um, so always been very into fashion, but I also come from um, a family of um, a family that's that was heavily involved in the fashion business. My great uh, my grandparents on both sides were in the textile business in Turkey, mm-hmm. and then my grandparents, my grandma, um, both my maternal and paternal grandmother, they're both um, were very into sewing and making a lot of my mom's clothes and my aunt's clothes and even my clothes. Um, so I've been around textiles my whole life, especially a traditional textiles um, coming from different parts of the Middle East. I mean, that's really cool. It's like in your blood, basically. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. And when I started, you know, my parents were very involved in helping me because I didn't really understand a lot of it. But yeah, I was very much into music. But, you know, as many of us know, it's very difficult to make a living in music. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I was, you know, trying to find something else um, that I was passionate about. Uh, that I could do for work. Um, I was working a nine to five job. I wasn't very happy with and doing music at night and performing on the weekends. And, you know, the only other thing all my friends would be like, you know, you're so good at styling. You're so good at fashion. And, and it just seemed like the only natural thing to do, but I'd never imagined having a fashion brand. It wasn't even a part of my, um, (laughs) part of my vision at all. And I met a woman in a class that I was taking who got up and started speaking about how she had this business in Bali and she brought sarongs back from Bali and sold them in the States. And fast forward, you know, 16 years, um, (laughs) (laughs) that woman became integral part in me starting my business. She connected me with her manager in Bali who, Um, I met after booking a ticket two weeks after speaking to her, meeting him, who's still, he is still my manager till this day in Bali. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a fast, fast story, but very fast. Yeah. 16 years (laughs) and like 16 seconds. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. When you were like, I'm going to go for this, I'm going to create a clothing line. Like who were you picturing would wear the clothes? Like what was, what were your muses? You know, I don't even think at the time I had muses. It was it was one of those things where I went to Bali and didn't even really know where Bali was. This is before Instagram even existed, <laughs> um, and you know made Bali uh, popular. You know, um, but I went to Bali and just fell in love with the culture and the people, and then the textiles and the colors and and the batik and and just completely in awe of 
of that beautiful culture and really wanted to keep going back to Bali. And I think that happens to a lot of people, which is what had happened to this woman, you know? And, and I I just said, you know, I'm going to start making clothes here and I'm going to start employing women in villages and, you know, just, I just wanted to go back to Bali. So I don't even think I was really thinking of like who was going to wear it or, you, I wasn't really like, I was just, I was just this like hippie and really excited about traveling back and forth to Bali. You know, honestly, <laughs> that's like the, the truth. And, um, and then I think it's now I have a different, obviously a very different perspective um, of who I think should wear it or who I see wearing it. I think, I think it's honestly that adventurous woman um, because my prints are so bold and I think it's mm-hmm. somebody that's adventurous, that likes to travel, that's, into culture that's um, into learning about um, different countries and is into ethical and sustainable businesses and supporting those kinds of businesses. Um, I would say like more of a conscious consumer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. How did it sort of change over time? Like, you know, my experience working in the industry is like, there's so much like calendar and strategy and advanced planning and, you know, people are drawn to the career path for the creative aspect of it. But, you know, once you're in it, you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, especially for you running your own brand, your own company, there's so much like operations involved and like business stuff. Like how how did you manage all of that, but still like still stay a hippie, still stay inspired? Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, I didn't really, really know how to run a business when I started. <laughs> <laughs> no one does. I think if you do, I think it means something weird. Yeah. About you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm lucky because my parents ha- own their own business and I come from a family, I'm Armenian. So I come from a family of you know, entrepreneurs, definitely. I mean, everybody I know owns their own business. So that's helpful. Yeah, it's very helpful. And my parents, you know, were immigrants. Uh, I was nine when I came here. I was born in Istanbul. And I think, you know, at the age of 13, I was getting, helping my dad get a business license because he didn't really speak English. So I think at a really young age, I learned um, skills that most people at most kids at the age of 13 don't really learn. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, sounds like it. Yeah. Because my dad very helpful. Yeah, my dad was like, I need to get a business license and you need to help me translate, you know. So um I I think having come from a family of entrepreneurs it really helped. Um and also seeing my parents and how hard they've worked and their work ethic um was an example mm-hmm. for me. Um but business I had to figure out. Um I think I would say I was very right-brained um, when I first started, and I would say it's pretty even left-right at this point um, because I think you make mistakes and you learn that you can't do it that way again. <laughs> and, I mean, if 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 you are smart, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, yeah, and I didn't I didn't have like funding when I started. I literally borrowed. Um, to be very transparent, $1,500 from my father when I first started. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also a different time now. It's so much different to start a brand now, but I was, Oh, for yeah. Sure. yeah. And I was so lucky because, um, Bali that didn't really have like high minimums at the time. So I could just make mm-hmm. like five of something and it was okay. You know? 
Um, so I, I really started small and just strategically grew it, you know, as opposed to just like having all this money and hiring all these people, you know, that that's not the route I went because I didn't have the resources to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think that is when that kind of scrappiness, like it creates, I don't know, it, it really sort of uh, encourages creative thinking and creative problem solving. I think like the best, the best brands, the best organizations come out of that. Whereas instead of like what we see a lot now where like, you know, maybe someone gets a massive investment to start a clothing line and then gets like three more rounds of massive investments. So it's already really corporate and kind of easy from day one. Mm. I don't I don't know. You know, obviously starting a business is really, really hard. And I think sometimes people get discouraged when they see all the big players out there that they're like trying to compete against and they think about the resources they have. And then, you know, they are like, I have $1,500 that I borrowed from my dad. How can I possibly make anything of this, but you're, you're proof of that, that you can, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy, but it can happen. And you can do something that you're really proud of. Then there's like a story there, you know, like that, that, um, and there's a journey, which is so powerful. You know, you're not, you didn't just get like $150,000 and hired all these people. And, you know, it's, it's just for me, I think doing it on a small scale and growing slowly had, is what worked and everyone's journey is very different. That was just mine. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think by making some mistakes and then making more mistakes and then more again, and, and then again, it, it, and then doing it on your own dime teaches Mm -hmm. you pretty quickly. I think there's a difference between like, Oh, I just made a, you know, $30,000 mistake, but my investor has to eat that up as opposed to like, Oh, I just made a, hundred dollar mistake (laughs) and you know it just it hurts you know it just yeah when it's your money it hurts uh when it's somebody else's money maybe not as much I don't know maybe I I I think so I think about like my jobs in larger corporations and if we like we had an order come in that was you know thirty thousand dollars and it it didn't fit right or someone had dropped the ball along the line. It was like, whatever, we'll just eat it. You know, if we missed our sales plan by $30,000, it was whatever, we'll roll it into next month. But when I'm working with my smaller clients, I'm always reminding myself that like every dollar can be the difference between staying in business or not. And so I'm like, we have to be as careful as possible. Like we can't round up or round down. We need to be really precise here, you know? So I get that. I mean, I think, uh, I think that's how you, do the best things. I mean, not, I, I'm not a person who's like, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't believe that in that at all. But I think when it's your own money on the line, your best work is always going to come out. Yeah, for sure. It has to. For sure. <laughs> and, and it's a constant like gamble and you have to be so careful to make sure you don't gamble with the wrong chip or whatever, you know? It's yeah. Like- yeah. I mean, and I'm a person who's very gambling adverse. So this sounds really stressful to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It can be. That's for sure. <laughs> so what was the moment where you were like, oh, oh my God, this is really working out. Like this is really a thing now. Well, I, you know, I was only in business for two years when um, Nordstrom, I was in a showroom in LA and Nordstrom came in, a buyer from Nordstrom came in and they saw one of my dresses and um you know, 
and they were like, Oh, we like this dress. And, and, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think anything of it. And then, you know, within a few weeks we had an order for all stores. I think it was like 4,000 yeah, 4, units. Wow. Um, That's like winning the lottery. Yeah. I mean, we had to go meet with them. So like, then they asked us to come to the Nordstrom sales office in Orange County and we had to take the dress and like one other, they wanted to see it in one other color or whatever. And it was only like one style, you know, like nothing, like it wasn't like I had a hundred styles to pick from. It was this one style that they just really liked. And they asked us to make it in, in two colors and they just, they loved it so much that we ended up doing this massive order. And mind you, like I've never done a massive order. So for me, like, <laughs> you know, they're like, can you do this? I'm like, oh yeah. You know, just say yes. <laughs> like <laughs> Figure it out later. Figure yeah. it out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, totally. You know, and like, I'm like two years into business, um, still trying to figure out accounting and all that stuff. So, and and they placed this order and it was like in all stores in the dresses department. And I think I was like, you know, kind of shocked not knowing how it was going to happen, but <laughs> it, it did. I made it happen. And, and we ended up, I mean, I only had like so many sewers and we had to go to like all these different factories in Bali and be like, we have this huge order, you know, we need your help. And we did, we made it happen. My, me and my manager just worked our buns off and, after that order, um, you know, we made a nice chunk of money, which is when mm -hmm. we were able to build our own factory. You know, that that was like our ticket. Um, we had dreamed about having our own space, our own land and building a factory that in our own way, because we were working with so many other factories and we weren't, things were running really late or we didn't like the way they were doing their business or the, the, the working conditions of, of, the employees there and the sewers there. So we decided, you know, once we made this money, we decided, Hey, let's buy some land and let's build a factory. And I think that's when it was like, Oh, wow, this is, this is happening. Like we're no longer just like hiring women from villages and having them sew from their homes. Like this is like, we're going to build a factory. You know, that was like a moment of I'm in for the long run kind of thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, that is so cool because, you know, something I've talked about a lot in the past on the podcast that kind of blows a lot of people's minds if you don't work in the industry is that most retailers, most brands do not own their own factory. And so that gives them very little transparency into who's actually making their clothes and how, you yes. know, so owning your own factory is major. I mean, that is a major accomplishment and it allows you to really control all the circumstances around what you're selling, what you're making, you know, it's a big, big deal. And that I can, wow, it's all thanks to Nordstrom. Yeah. And, and <laughs> in another country, you know, so it's like, not only is there a factory being built, but you know, I was only going like a couple times a year and I can't just like live there as an American and, you know, just trusting that it's going to be built solid, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, cause people cut corners in countries like Indonesia yeah. and, and I mean, thank God his, my, um, manager's brother-in-law was an architect and a developer. So he helped us. And so we had people we had trusted and, you know, but, but really like having it be in a different country, that's like 26 hours away, you know, that I can't just be like, oh, this isn't working out. Let me go over there real quick and look at it, you know? So yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, that stress of it. And yeah, but I think that moment was like this realization of, wow, like I'm doing this and I'm, and, and now I'm going to be responsible for a lot of people and their, their, their well being and making sure that they can feed their children and families and, you know, the just like really reality kicked in, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's an intense amount of responsibility. Yes. <laughs> yes. So how did COVID affect you, your line, your ability to care for your workers? Wow. I mean, I know everyone's been affected, <laughs> you know, especially in fashion. Yeah. Literally every person. It was very difficult. Um, you know, we we're very much a made to order business. So we've been selling to small boutiques for many, many years. And, you know, we don't even make anything unless they order it. And, you know, we've never been a company that just makes a bunch of stuff and hopes to sell it. Like we just have never operated that way. So for us, we had all these orders that were made for our boutiques and, you know, literally like March 13th came and we were calling people like, Hey, your order's ready to ship. And they're like, I don't want my order. I, I'm closing my store, you know, and Oof. and then boxes we had shipped the week yeah. before. All of a sudden, UPS was returning them to us, and and I had like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of merchandise like in our warehouse. Oh my god! Then I have to, you know, that merchandise needs to be paid for. So you know, I owed so much money to my fabric vendors and my sewers, and um, you know. I need to get paid so I can pay everybody, you know? So it was just horrific. I mean, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and then, but for me, what really kicked in was, oh my goodness, if I can't pay my sewers, if I don't pay my workers, they will starve. Like they don't, it's not mm -hmm. like in Indonesia, it's not like, oh, now unemployment kicks in and everyone's getting unemployment. There, there's nothing like there's no program like right. that. So it was like, if I don't pay them, they're going to starve. I was like, the vendors need to wait until I can figure out how to pay my source. So it's just like survival mode kicked in and we, you know, I didn't want to make masks. Um, but for some reason, all our sewers were like, we're going to start making masks because mainly because people in villages needed masks and they asked me if we can use the scraps. And I said, of course. So they just started making masks mm -hmm. and they were posting about it. And my, and then my manager was messaging me saying, look at the masks. They look, they look really nice. You know, we should make masks. And, and we did, and we kind of, you know, that kept them going for a little bit. And then, um, we, also, um, our good friends, um, the brand Johnny Coda, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, they, Johnny just yeah. won, uh, making the cut on Amazon. It's a show. Uh, Ooh. yeah, he won. It was like right when COVID hit. Um, and he, we're very close to them and their factory is very close to ours. And they were actually doing well because they had just won the show and, and they needed help with sewing. So then we were able to help them. So I basically just went into like, what can we do to keep them going? What, and and they couldn't sew in the factory, but they could sew from their homes. And most of our sewers have machines in their homes, you know? So mm -hmm, we just mm -hmm. went into like survival mode and did everything we could do to keep them, you know, employed. And, and at least, you know, I knew that at least half of their income just paid half that month and the next month we'll figure it out, you know? And I had friends yeah, just like yeah. being like, here's 250 bucks Venmo here. Give it to your sewers. I, I just had friends just sending me money 
you know, like people that have always like believed in my brand. And, and that was like, I was just crying. Like I would just get a Venmo sent to me. They would just say like for your sewers. And I would just start crying because I feel like when something like this happens, everyone just, they want to help, you know? And Mm-hmm. It was really beautiful to see that from friends and family and, and yeah, and we worked through it, you know, and we've been able to sell a lot of that inventory. Um, some of the boutiques took their orders later. Um, we still have some inventory, but I think having an online business that we had been really focusing on really helped. Um, so we did some sales and we're still selling through it. It's not all gone, but um, we, we, we made it through, you know. That's, that's great. You know, and I'm, I like seriously was starting to like tear up thinking about your friends Venmoing you to help the sewers. Yeah. It was like, I just couldn't believe it. And do you feel that, I mean, cause I, I feel like the pandemic has changed my outlook on so many things, you know, my priorities and, you know, I just, how I feel in my day to day life. Do you feel as if the pandemic has changed your relationship with your business, with your work, with your own style even? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, I love, I love my team and I've, and you know, some of my, some of the people that work for us have been working with, with us for like 12, 13 years. I mean, these aren't like, you know, the Balinese are very loyal people. So mm-hmm. it, it, I, I know how much I care for them, but when this happened, like I wasn't even thinking about myself. I was just like, so worried about them, you know, and just like, mm-hmm. and, and I knew how much I cared about them, but it like really hit home how much, because I, I was like, you know, my husband was still employed. I was very lucky. Um, and I was thinking like, we're going to, I'm going to be okay. Like my husband's still employed. We're going to be fine. But I was like, what are they going to do? You know? And I think right. that's, that just like, and then that responsibility, knowing that I am responsible for all these people, and if I don't pay them, they can't eat. I mean, I, we were hearing stories of like parents that couldn't get milk for their kids in villages, you know, like babies, they couldn't buy milk, you know? So it's just like, every time we heard stories like this, it just made me realize like, I've always had like cared about the people and I've always wanted to give back to Bali, but th- it really hit home more than ever, like in my gut, you know, <laughs> and in my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet, I bet. And also like, I realized that there was aspects of my business that especially like the wholesale portion where every season, like you need to have like 150 new pieces and go to market. (laughs) You know, there's that whole, like you got to do shows and this and that and trade shows. And, and like, I felt like we were just like fast, 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 you know, you need new styles, new styles. And like, I would come out with a new styles and like within a month that our reps would be like, we need more. And and I was just so sick of that whole concept and system. And I realized that, you know what? I don't need to keep doing this anymore. And and I felt like I, I was just creating things just to create things. And mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. this made it into like, no, you know what? I'm only going to create 10 things that I really love, not 150 things that I think people are going to buy. You know what I mean? Like it just yeah. – I I just realized like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, I'm not going to like stress myself out to a point where I'm like flying to get to FedEx, you know, like literally this has happened so many times and, you know, to make sure it gets there before the show, before the show starts. And like that whole fast pace was just killing me, you know? And I just realized like, look, I don't need to do that anymore. Like, I just don't, you know? And, 
And if I am about minimal waste and lean production, then I need to be about that completely in every aspect of my business, not just like one, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that really like that whole concept like really came home, you know, in a in a real way for me. I mean, I think that's so interesting because you started your business in the aughts. And so it was like pre the rise of fast fashion, you know, and in my experience working in the industry, because I began working as a buyer in the aughts, I saw the shift from like pre 2008 to post 2008 in terms of how fast and how much stuff we were making Oh yeah, and just the calendar being sped up. And I was wondering if like, did you see that same thing happening to your line, you know, not because you were choosing that, but it maybe it happened slowly and it's just like, is what the system became? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it just felt like, I, I would say like never enough was like the story. Like if there was like, a, <laughs> if there was like a, a, a book I wrote about my brand at that time, it was like never enough. You know, it's like, it's like nothing was ever enough. Like no style mm-hmm. wasn't ever enough. It's like, I just felt like I was constantly like this machine that I had to keep creating and keep creating and keep creating. And it just like, it got, it got exhausting, you know? And yeah. And especially like, you know, if we're saying we're, we're focused on ethical, I hate to use the word sustainable. I feel like that, that word just gets thrown around. Like it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. And actually Mm -hmm. recently I was in a, there was something going on about with Doan and I think we were talking about it and like, you know, everybody was talking about sustainable and sustainable. Like I don't, I have yet to find a brand that's completely sustainable. Like, I don't think that exists. I think the closest thing to that would be uh, Patagonia for me, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. to be sus- completely sustainable. I mean, you literally have to like grow the cotton in your yard and sew it right there. And, you know, it's just, it's impossible. And I think this word is just being used like it's no big deal. And so that's why I like to always say like ethical, because that's, you know, we're all doing the best that we can to be as sustainable as we can. But for any brand to be a hundred percent sustainable, it's almost like so difficult to get to, you know? So oh, yeah, for sure. You'd have to literally, like you said, you'd have to own the farm. Yeah. And the factory, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and then ship it next door to your neighbor. You know, it's like it, walk it to your neighbor. I mean, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just, you'd have to be small, very small, basically. Like the most, the only truly sustainable business is going to happen on a small scale, except that if you're that small, then you can't afford to have the farm and the textile mill and the factory. So it's sort of like a vicious cycle. Like you just, it's like I always say progress and not perfection because perfection is not a possibility. Yeah, that's you know? really, I love that progress. Yes, it's about progress. And for me, it's like every season, you know, I sit down with my team. I'm like, okay, what can we do this season to, to be more sustainable? So it's like we always add something you know, to the mix to make that happen, you know? And, and it's like every season, my goal is like every season, more progress, more, Mm -hmm. you know, something that can shift, shift and get us up in that sustainability bar, you know? And we have to do it that way because there's no way to be hundred percent. So, you know, I, and I think with, with fast fashion, it's like, you know, I see H and M and Zara like, Oh, renew life. And like, you know, it's like, 
you're Zara. You're making thousands of pieces. I don't care what you're making. You're I know. not sustainable. Like, I mean, I don't, don't want, get me started. I mean, I'm like, I why are you guys even trying? <laughs> like H&M, it's like, and I'm glad they are, but it's just like, you know, we all need to do our part, but it is about, for me, like the most important thing is like lean, lean, lean production. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, I say all the time that uh, fast fashion can never be sustainable because the volume at which it's created on and intended to be sold on means that it can never actually be sustainable. Like fast fashion is only supported by overconsumption, which at its core is not sustainable, right? Exactly. Um, and I, I, I get kind of I mean, I get angry when I see brands like Zara and H&M using sustainable as like a marketing term because then I look at people like you who are actually, you know, being significantly more sustainable than they ever would be, could be. You know, you're caring for your workers, you're making just enough, all of these things that are really important. And yet you yourself would say, I don't feel comfortable using the term sustainable. Oh, I don't. Right? And that's like – it's like the more someone goes out with the megaphone and yells that they're sustainable, the less I trust them. Because if you're truly focused on ethical production, on being an ethical company, you're constantly trying harder and you never feel like you've gotten there. And that's- Oh, you never do. You never right, do. Right, because no. that is, that's what it is to be a good person. <laughs> you know, you're never perfect. You're always trying harder and harder. So I hate, I hate- the abuse of the word sustainable. I mean, fortunately, at least the fast fashion brands haven't really tried to adopt ethical because if they did, then we'd be like, oh, so wait, you're saying that all these other years you were taking, you were like exploiting human beings. Oh, okay. Like they're never going to do that. That's like really bad PR. No, yeah. Maybe maybe we need to reclaim the word ethical then. Yeah, we do. I mean, that's why we, we say like, like our, our tagline is like ethical is the new normal because also like, sustainability has different pillars. It's not just about being eco-conscious. It's about like the people behind the people. it. Yeah. yeah it, it's it's not just like, oh, I use I use sustainable fabric. So now I'm sustainable. Well, well how are you treating the people yeah. that are sewing your clothes and how are you paying them? And are you, you know, there's so much more, there's like an economics part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So and and it's interesting because I, I I recently got have a new assistant and she was doing something for our stories and she used the word sustainable and I was like oh so we need to have that conversation like literally everyone that comes into my <laughs> office I'm like okay so we need to have the conversation we don't use the word sustainable like like it's literally like my rule like we don't <laughs> we don't use it in any of our copy and it's it's because I don't if I'm gonna say something I need to stand behind it and I don't. Yes, we're we're doing our best to be as sustainable as possible, but to say we're sustainable to me is not truth, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like ethical actually in 2021 is such, in my opinion, a much more powerful word because most people don't actually know what sustainability or sustainable means. They're not like going and checking out the UN sustainable growth, you know, sustainable development goals. They're not doing that research. They don't know that. But Ethical is such a meaningful personal word because I think ethical is a reflection of the values of the people leading the company or the brand. You know, it's like saying like, these are my ethics, they're personal, and I am extending them to how I run my business. I think that's really powerful. Yes. And like, I I always say this and I use this in like everything that I say is like, 
like sustainability consists of like three pillars and it's like environmental protection, economic viability, social equity. And like, we can't call ourselves sustainable or ethical if all of these three things are not present, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, that is like, that needs to be there to, to be able to use that word, you know? And it's just like, I don't know. It's so important. I, I totally agree. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the larger brands are hoping that none of us know that. And so, like, they can be like, look, this is made of recycled soda bottles. And we'll be like, oh, my God, I bought 10. You know, like, I was at Target a couple weeks ago, and they had these T-shirts for $5 that were partially made of recycled plastic. And I was like, if this shirt's $5, and I know that recycled PET is more expensive than regular poly, Oh, it's so expensive. It's I not know. even like a l- little bit. Like it's it's very – and that's the thing. Like we're not at a place yet where sustainable fabrics and like – and fabrics that decompose are cheap yet. I mean they're no. very expensive. They're totally. They're incredibly expensive. And so if, if that thing is $5, <laughs> then someone got paid nothing for it, probably exactly. 10 cents. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why it's like – Sometimes I have these fantasies, which I'm never going to live out, I know, where I go around and all I do is vandalize signs like that. And I also use our car to run over Trump signs in people's yards. Like, that's just all I would do <laughs> is run over Trump signs and vandalize <laughs> fake sustainability signs in stores. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. I always joke that, like, that's the day. One day I'm just going to do it all day. It's going to feel so good and until I get arrested and then it'll be a bummer. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I definitely think about that a lot because, like, when it comes to sustainability like that, once again, someone's like, I didn't necessarily need a T-shirt, but this one is not only, like, $5, which is cheap, but it's also, like, sustainable. So I guess I'll just buy one. And and that's that's the intent there. You know, like, that – is why that sign is on those shirts for $5. And it, it just, yeah, it makes, it makes me really angry all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know, like if speaking of signs, like, I don't know if you ever read, like there was a point where um, Zara, I guess hadn't paid this big factory and all the factory uh, sewers, like they literally went to the Zara's and put a note on all the garments, like in the stores, like saying like, I was not paid for this garment that you're about to purchase. Like, like, I don't know if you saw that. It was like their way of like letting the consumer know, like they were putting signs on all the clothes. Like I was not paid for this, you know, but it's like things like that, that make, make an impact, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like bringing, making things real for people who don't know, because, you know, it shouldn't be that hard to make the right decisions with your money. But unfortunately, it's really, really hard. Every time I'm like looking into some like sort of greenwashing claim, in order to get to the bottom of it, I have to like read for hours to finally wade through all of the like press releases or blog posts that are directly from a press release because they use all the same verbiage all the time. And I have to dig and dig and dig to be like, oh, okay, so that's the real story about XYZ. All right. So it is plastic. Okay. Now I know, you know, and so it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hard. And I, I get messages from people all the time who are really like beating themselves up over possibly making the wrong decision buying something. And I'm like, you know, you got to cut yourself some slack because it is designed to be confusing. It is. And we're getting so much information on a daily basis that 
you know, I mean, unless you actually take the time to really look into that brand that you're buying from and really look into it. I mean, cause it could be telling you something, but ultimately what is happening, you know? So, and most people don't have time. So they're just like seeing a note and they're like, Oh, good enough. You know? So it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so insane about it that if I'm thinking yeah, about Yeah, we're like more of the nerds about it. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I, and I will even be like, I'm going to look at their glass door and see if they have bad employee reviews. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, that's good. You're, you're very rare. So. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot. Of, it's a pandemic. I have a lot of time on my hands and I'm a very fast reader. So not for everyone, not recommended for everyone per se, unless <laughs> you also are a speed reader, then I say go for it. Um, I'd love to read a good review and a bad review. So, I mean, I think this is great because my next question was going to be like, how does the way you run the brand embody your own personal values? But like, I mean, you've already started to share them here. Like you really care <laughs> about doing the best job. Yeah, I think, I mean, like selecting fabrics that are more eco-conscious, um, making sure that we, I mean, are pretty much like our scraps are, I would probably say like 99% upcycled. Like we find ways to reuse the scraps um, from like we were making masks for a while and then um, we donate to villages. So um, like a lot of them turn into children's clothing. So it'll be Cute. funny because like one of my stores were like bringing their kid and like there's they're wearing like one of my prints in a t-shirt. You know, it's just so funny. That so, is so cute though. It's Those so are cool. cute. It's yeah. so cute. And I'm all about it, you know. And then sometimes like there will be like, doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. We're hand printing everything. So there'll be like a mishap or something that, and what are we going to do with the fabric? Like it's still fine, but maybe a customer would return it. Like, and when we have like little when we have batches like that, like we'll just say, Hey, there's some extra fabric and it's fine. Nobody knows, you know, that the color's a little different than what, but you know, we may not be able to use it on our website or whatever, but we have this extra fabric and we'll let our sewers have it. Or sometimes like the very small, um, cuttings that are left over from the cutting table, like those go into a bag. And then a lot of times they're used for like pillow stuffing. Um, so anything we can do to upcycle that fabric to make sure it doesn't go into like a landfill, um, even uh, like it's really great to, especially the rayon spandex um, we use for like cleaning as like a cleaning fabric. It's such a good fabric for cleaning. Um, my friend has a villa there and her, her staff always comes by like once a month and gets cleaning fabric from us. You know, we're just constantly trying to find ways to upcycle the scraps. And, and even now, like whatever we do small batch printing. So for example, especially for online right now, we're mostly made to order. So everything in our new arrival section, we've, it's all made to order. So we will print like 15 yards of fabric and I'm talking like 15 and that's it. Sometimes 15, sometimes 30. And then based on that, when somebody orders, we cut, sew and ship. So we don't just like and, and then if we're starting to run out of that fabric, we'll say, okay, let's go print another batch. So we're not printing like a thousand yards and hoping it's going to sell and making it into a garment that we just hope is going to sell, you know, because you don't know, you might think this style is great, but you'd be surprised what the consumer <laughs> ends up gravitating towards, yep. you know? <laughs> yep. I, I know. And I'm always well. <laughs> shocked about that. <laughs> I, was just like, I was like, huh? Okay. I was actually just, uh, I just had, um, 
coffee with a friend of mine, David, and he was, we were just talking about this and he's getting ready to launch his sustainable brand. And we were talking about it. And I said, you'd be surprised what people like, like you think, you know, but then Mm. once you do the numbers, you know, give it like a year and what people gravitate towards might be very different. So just to guess on that is, is just for me is just like creating waste. So I've always been like, how can I, how can I reduce waste? How can I you know, make sure even recently we, um, we've had people, you know, sometimes like, um, if people order the same dress, they don't know what size is going to fit. So they'll order in like a small and a medium and then like, like, Oh, I'll just return the other one. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a made to order business, then I have to cut. sew both of those knowing that you're going to return one of them, you know? Right. So we'll literally like, if we get that order, we'll email the customer and be like, can we help you choose the right size? Like, we can help you with measurements because we're a cut to order business. We don't want to create, I mean, we have that dialogue with our customer, even at that point, just to make, and a lot of times they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Can you help me? You know, and, and we find the right size for them. And so we don't have to make that extra garment, you know? Uh huh. I mean, that's amazing. I wish all businesses offered that. I mean, when you think about it, even if you don't cut to order, it makes a lot of sense to offer that kind of support because, retailers and brands are eating so many returns. Like it's because we've all been trained to just order two sizes. Yeah. And and honestly, like I'm very, that's one of the things I'm very, very proud of. Like I'm, I'm super big on fit. I mean, we go through so many, like making sure that the fit is going to be great. I've mm-hmm. always been about that. And I think honestly, probably why I'm still in business um, because <laughs> fit is so important, you know, and, and, especially because you're dealing with different body shapes and different types of women and and fit is such an important thing. And we want to avoid return as much as possible. And we want people to be happy. And when we look at our return rate, especially online, it's way below the industry average, which makes me really proud, which makes me really proud, you know, because I don't, again, that means less waste, you know, all of that, like it doesn't, maybe it's just like one piece here and a piece here, but eventually it adds up you know? Yeah, for sure. No, it does. Trust me. The numbers for like the larger retailers are really staggering. Um, It's been such a shift as e-commerce has become more popular. So since you are uh, cut to order now, I'm assuming that means that it takes a little bit longer for the customer to get their order, right? Um, Do you get a lot of weird pushback from customers about that? Are they like, oh, cool, this is great? Um, you know, it's actually like pretty fast. Like we, we can, um, cut, sew and ship within like two to three days, which is not that bad. Yeah. Um, but what ends up happening, like we're running into that right now. Um, we, you know, there, if there's like a really popular item and it, we like, let's say we only printed like 15 to 30 yards of that fabric. Um, if it's sold quickly, then it's like, we go back to the printer and say, print it please. And then that could take sometimes like two weeks. And Mm. what ended up happening with this, um, and we say it like on our website, like this is going to ship in two weeks. So they know when they purchase it. Um, but sometimes like, you know, Bali has a lot of holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. I mean, talk about holidays. It's like, they have so many holidays and, you know, we just ran into that recently where there was a holiday and it, it created more, it took way more than two weeks. So now we have some upset customers and we, 
we're definitely in communication with them. We're letting them know. And, but you know, it does happen where there's a holiday and there's like four days or five days where our workers are not working. Mm -hmm. And so that created like more of a delay than normal. Um, But yeah, it does tend to take a little longer, but it's not an issue as long as we can kind of forecast like, oh, this is a popular print. We can print more kind of thing. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's not too bad. (laughs) Do you think that you are going to expand into more sizes since you have that sort of cut to order model? It might not be as risky to add more sizes. Yes, I've been wanting, um, I've actually done extended sizing before. Um, and I want to go back to that for sure. And we get that that's requested of us a lot. So that's one of the things we are working on. Um, we want to do that because we want to be able to like have clothes for everyone, you know, and just, and, and we get, we, I'm constantly getting emails saying, I love this dress, but I wish it came in more sizes, you know? So we're working on that for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like there are so few ethical brands out there that offer more sizes that you could like corner the market. You yeah, would automatically get all the customers. Yeah, they and and we're because it's requested so much, we feel it's gonna it's gonna do well if we do it. So we're working on it. That's awesome. So I want to talk to you about your factory because you know before we even spoke the first time, I was doing all this reading about it, and I was getting really excited about all the practices in place at your factory. Why is creating a good work environment and paying living wages so important to you? I mean, for me, like at the end of the day, I think for me, like there came a point where I realized like at the end of the day, this is fashion. You know, I want my life to have more meaning like, and I want for me, like what makes me happy is giving back and giving back in different ways. Like whether it's to my workers, whether it's to Bali, whether it's, you know, I'm Armenian and Armenians have been going through a lot, especially in the last year with the war and like Mm -hmm. whatever I can do to give back. So for me, like that, that is such an important component of my business. And I've realized even more with COVID, like what that means to me and how much more I want to elevate that aspect of my business And so for us, like we've really focused on, you know, being able to, so we have a loan program where we, um, so if there's somebody like one of our sewers wants to make a purchase and they, they don't have the funds, it's a larger purchase, then they can borrow from the company and, um, and we can deduct from their paycheck slowly and they can, um, purchase something that they want. And so we have a loan program that we put into place. Um, lunches, we provide lunches every day for our workers. Um, we're, um, working on like a healthcare program right now. And we've been working with the Bali children foundation where, um, about it costs about $40 for a child to go to school in Bali per month. And even though uh, school is free, you still need to purchase books and uniforms and most um, families in rural areas cannot afford that. So then what ends up happening is they end up working back in the rice fields and then the the cycle of poverty just keeps continuing, right? So mm-hmm. we've been working with the Bali Children Foundation and um, through our sales, giving back um, to them. Um, just 
whatever we can do to give back to the community that's making Belkazam possible in the first place, um, for me is, is important and is something that I want to continue to do. Um, so just coming up with more programs really to do that. I mean, I, I love this and I just have to say for everyone who's listening, this is not the standard for workers to get lunch for their employer to be concerned about their children's education. Like none of these are, this is not the norm in the apparel industry at all. And in fact, just in overseas manufacturing in general, you know, this just does not exist. What is Bali like? Because I bet some people who are listening, they have an idea of Bali, that Bali is an island. They know that. <laughs> but they're like, yeah. uh, is it like a, like a remote rural island? Is it more, you know, urban? Uh, what What is it like to live in Bali? I mean, there's definitely rural parts of it, um, like especially in North Bali. I mean, there's like very small village. I mean, there's villages that don't have a lot of electricity even, you know, so, mm -hmm. but then you've got like your Beverly Hills, you know, <laughs> there's like, <laughs> there, the, like every place, um, there's an area called Seminyak that has like all these hotels and Nusadua and like Ubud is the art art and cultural center of Bali, which is this little town. And, and I'm sure if you watched um, Eat, Pray, Love, you know, you know about Ubud. And so there are like the main areas and then Dempasar is a pretty big city. Um, so there are developed areas and then there's rural areas. So, you know, but there are areas like in the rural areas, like there's definitely a lot more um, poverty um, mm -hmm. as opposed to like in the city, like with anywhere, right? Um, but overall, like, I think for me, why I fell in love with Bali so much is I, you know, I come up, I come from a very traditional Armenian uh, culture and, and I, it's, it's interesting. Like I just relate because the Balinese are such a small part of Indonesia and they're, they're Hindu. So, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Indonesia is one of the largest population of Muslims in the world is in Indonesia. Mm hmm. So um, it's predominantly a Muslim country and Bali is an island that remained Hindu. So it's, it's, they're very religiously, very different from the rest of their country. Um, so they have, as a people have had to survive and really uh, with their language and their culture and really worked hard at surviving. And I relate to that on, on such a mm -hmm. higher level because it's the same thing with Armenians. We went through a genocide, you know, and we've mm -hmm. had to try to survive in this whole time. And, and I grew up very much like you're Armenian, you know, you have to know about your culture. You have to know the language, you have to know our traditions and the Balinese are the same. So we, I really relate to them on this level because we were so suppressed as a culture for so long. And so were the Balinese, you know, um, cause they constantly try to change them into Muslim or Christian or wherever. And, so I just relate. I think uh, it's even when I speak to like my manager, like we'll just he'll just he'll just tell me about how close he is to his family, and he'll tell me about certain things that I just I just feel like I'm I'm talking to an Armenian person, but they're they're Balinese, <laughs> you know. So so I think for me, I just related to them so much that mm -hmm. um, I, I found something in in the Balinese and in Bali, and it, and it's also just beautiful i mean i'm sure you've seen all the instagram images oh, yeah. it's it's like it's a paradise it is, just, it is just beautiful i mean it's a jungle and it's just so lush and green and because it rains so much i mean it is just 
And then there's like offerings everywhere. I mean, the Balinese are very spiritual people. So you'll just be like walking down the street and you'll see these like women coming down with their offerings and their incense and flowers. And like, there's more temples than people on the island. You know, there's temples everywhere. And it is just, you know, I feel very grounded when I'm there. And um, it's unlike, you know, I'll be like at a bank. Literally, this has happened to me so many times. I'll be at a bank trying to, make a deposit or something in Bali and like everything will stop. Cause they have to do like an offering, like you're in a bank, you know, and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, but it reminds you to like take a moment and appreciate and be grateful. And I think that's what I love about Bali. You know, yeah, it sounds magical. I want to go right now. <laughs> you should, uh, you never been. No, I've never been. I mean, it's on oh my, my list. Uh, definitely must. want to do it in the next couple of years. You must. I think I don't, I have yet to meet somebody that goes to Bali and doesn't fall in love with it. I mean, everybody that goes there is like, I'm coming back. I mean, it, it just happens to everybody. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. It's, it sounds incredible. Well, so, you know, as we talked about a few minutes ago, or maybe it was a million years ago, I can't remember, but we talked about how, you know, the larger companies, like we talked about Zara, H&M, those kinds of places, they aren't providing lunch for their workers. They don't own their factories, so they couldn't do that in the first place. You know, they're they're not concerned about their workers, children's education, even, you know, their retail workers here in the United States. That's because it's challenging to do things the right way, right? It takes a lot yeah. of extra effort. I mean, you're proving that it is not impossible and it's totally doable and you can run an amazing business doing that. But I'm sure that there have been some challenges along the way that you've faced growing a business that operates ethically. Like One of the things that I find challenging is like trying to get information about the fabric. Um, like recently I was asking about a certain fabric. I'm like, okay, where does this come from? Who makes it? And it's mm -hmm. like, people just look at me like, what? Like, <laughs> I mean, just I know, I know someone else was asking me about fabric. And I was like, when you work in the industry, you don't know anything about the fabric you're working with. It like doesn't even come up in conversation. It's crazy. And when I ask the question, like people look at me like, I don't like, I don't know. Like, I'm like, <laughs> can you find out? Like, can you like, where is this coming from? Where was it made? Like even the simplest question, like where was it made, you know, or like, yeah, it, it's just, it's really difficult to get information. And I think, you know, we're in the process of like switch. So like we were talking about every season doing something that's going to make us more sustainable. We're in the process of completely getting rid of poly bags. Awesome. Which That's I've exciting. Been working on. Yeah. I've been working on this forever and it's like, it's just been so difficult because, you know, there's, there's also like that, you know, green poly bags where they say it's like made from, made from plants and it's com compostable, but then it's not really because it needs to compost in a certain environment. Yep, so it's yep. like, <laughs> then it's almost like I looked into this and it's like, oh wait, no, it's actually better to have plastic because you can't compost that. It's going to go in a landfill. You know, it's just, it's been really challenging. And we finally found, and actually through Mara Hoffman, because they have such an amazing sustainability department and they were so kind to share information, which they're so so great about this. Um, you know, they'll let you just like email them and ask them questions. And, you know, I bought something from Mara Hoffman, who's one of my favorite designers. I mean, I love her to death. She's an amazing human being, but, um, I bought something from her and it came in this, in this bag. And I was like, Oh my God, what is this? You know? And, and then I contacted their sustainability team and right away they're like, here's the bag, you should look into it. And, and so now we're, we're switching into this bag and 
it's like a recycled paper. So, oh, that's really cool because yeah. you know those those bioplastics. I mean, I've definitely been at trade shows like at Magic and whatnot where there have oh. been people there trying to sell us those no. like bioplastic bags, and I'm like, yeah, but these aren't actually compostable unless it's under these like really specific criteria, which isn't going to happen. And the ingredients, if you will, for those bags are taken from the food supply. We already have people going hungry in the world. This isn't a viable, this isn't a viable well, option. <laughs> and it takes pesticides to grow it. So it's like, there's just oh, so many, there's yeah. so many like layers to it. And so that's why I really have taken my time to like switch over in the right way. So I finally feel like, okay, this is a good thing. Like we're, we finally found something, you know, but I mean, it is like, it's so challenging in so many ways of like trying to get that information. Mm -hmm. And with the fabric uh, supply chain, I feel like it's very difficult with the dye uh, supply chain. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It's very difficult. Um, and then like a lot of people just don't know like where things come from, you know? And like, mm -hmm that has been, I feel like the ch most challenging part is like, you want to make sure you're using the right things, but where do you get the information, you know? So, mm -hmm. and, and I haven't really been able to travel there because of COVID. So, you know, I've been, I've been even thinking about like going to some of these suppliers, you know, and just like, I know um, we use a rayon spandex that is actually comes from lensing and it's Okotex certified, mm -hmm. but their factory is in Jakarta. So I've been thinking like, okay, next time I go there, I'm going to go see this factory because they might tell you that, but is it like, I need to go see it with my eyes, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a really great vendor and I trust my vendor. Um, he's very professional, mm -hmm. but it is, it has been like the information part of it has been really difficult. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I've been doing a lot of work on fabrics the past few weeks uh, for Instagram, and it's just like <sighs> you have to like with lensing, for example, because they seem to be doing the best work out there in fabrics. You just have to trust them, and I want to do that. But remember, people trusted like the oil and gas companies for a long time. Yes. People trusted the cigarette companies, you know? And so it's like, it's just so hard. And I, like fabric is so mysterious for lack of a better adjective. You know, when you ask questions about it, no one really knows. In a lot of my experience, yeah. the fabric is coming from like the markets in China and like nobody really knows that they're, they're, they're shopping for prints that you requested, you know, like they're not. Yeah, because somebody might've bought it and then they're selling it to you. So like by the time you get the information, like where is it, where is it really coming from? Yeah, you and know? who knows that? Like, but if you're the designer or the brand, you're so far down that line. You're like, so far. Yeah, <laughs> you just have no idea. It's true. Like the person who sold it to you probably doesn't know either. And I think that's that's something that I'm trying to call out more and more is that like there's a lot of concern about where our clothing is made and who sh who makes it, which we should be concerned about, but we forget about all of these sort of like ingredients to that garment that also are being made by people somewhere, somehow. We have no idea. I was doing a bunch of reading this week where they were speculating. I mean, I guess there's evidence that points to this, that a lot of these synthetic fabric factories in China, specifically like the poly factories, are also using a lot of forced labor and child labor and wow. they kind of get away with it because no one cares about the fabric. No one checks like the man, the retailers, the big retailers aren't including that as part of their factory inspections because they don't, they don't think about it either. I guess I definitely didn't think about it when I was in the industry, you know, polyester to me, like I don't even 
consider, like I would, first of all, I've never used it, but I don't even like. <laughs> I can't imagine you using I it. Ever, ever, wild. ever. But like the idea of polyester to me, I'm like, people still use, like, I'm like, people still use polyester. Like it, it's just, it's mind blowing to me. Like, I'm like, how, how do they even still use it knowing how bad it is? I know, I know. You know, a lot of people, myself included, when I think of polyester, I think of the 70s, but actually the most polyester made in history and worn in history has been in this century. So it's it's going strong. Well, it's so cheap. I mean, and, and like, I'm actually surprised because you see people in Bali wearing a lot of polyester and Bali is like oh. so humid. I mean, it is like hot and humid. And I'm like, the last thing I would want to wear, first of all, even if it was it wasn't hot would be polyester, but given the, the humidity level and the heat, why? Like, I just don't, because it's cheap. And, and really, I think that's, that's where like, I want to see fashion go is like somehow make, you know, remember when like organic food was a thing, it was like so expensive. So I feel expensive, like yeah. it's still expensive, but it's gone down a little, like it, it, it's more accessible, right? And Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm always pleasantly surprised by the price of organic food now, you know? Yeah, and, I'm, and I am too. And, and, and I'm hoping, like, that's where fashion's going to be, like, in maybe five, ten years from now. Like, it's more accessible because for me, like, for us, when we do direct-to-consumer, we're willing to pay that. But, like, we can't do wholesale with with sustainable fabrics and natural dyes and because mm-hmm. it's just the margins aren't there when it's costing so much money like we we can't offer it on mm-hmm. a wholesale level you know so it's like but I think that's what's so beautiful about direct to consumer and I think I've been talking to a lot of brands and a lot of brands you know I think have wanted to go more direct to consumer and get rid of the wholesale component altogether and I think covid really sped yes. that up for I a think lot it did too Talking to my friends um, at various brands, they're like, we're doing better than ever, actually, and we have none of the risk that we knew we had before, but now we, like, really saw it during COVID, like, with the cancellations. But, I mean, you know, when you are selling wholesale, you as the brand, it's very risky because you don't know if a retailer is going to cancel on you. You don't know if they're mm-hmm. going to come back to you for markdown money somewhere down the line. Uh, you don't know if they're going to RTV over this or that or charge you back because you didn't use the right kind of poly bag. And it's it's really, really stressful. I cannot imagine starting a wholesale brand right now. <laughs> I would be so terrified. Yeah. No, it's it's so stressful and it's and it's scary. And it is. It's so much of a risk with with wholesale in general, mm-hmm. you know? And like it's it's when you're doing and there's certain things that like I can't do. Like right now I'm I'm this is like, hasn't been released yet, but I think um, we're working on a small capsule of all natural dyed garments, Ooh. literally coming from plant-based. Yeah. So that this has been like something I've been wanting to do forever, but like I haven't been able to do it because on a wholesale level, it just doesn't make right. sense. It's too expensive. I mean, it's so expensive to natural mm-hmm. dye, you know, which I understand because it's a very, very, very time consuming process, you know? And requires a lot of plants <laughs> just to dye like one yeah. garment. Um, and I'm just learning about it now. But w- but now that we're focusing so much more on direct to consumer, we can offer a capsule. You know, like maybe like our margins aren't as high as we'd like, but at the same time we can do it. So now we're working on this small group, and it's all literally like 
died by using certain fruits and plants. And it's so cool. I mean, I'm so fascinated by it altogether. Cool. And I do, I do agree. Like right now doing that kind of stuff is so cost prohibitive, especially because you need to sell it for half the retail price to a whole, like to a wholesale account. So in order for you to make money off of that, it's kind of impossible unless you charge the the account a ton and then they doubled the price of that to sell it to the customer and then no one would buy it. So that's that's the drawback of wholesale. It's really limiting because the, the mm-hmm. ceiling on how much it can cost you to make something and still have it be appealing to a customer is a lot lower because of that like middle step of selling it to someone else. Yeah. And, and with, I think with something that's like natural dyed, like you really can't, you can't do wholesale on that because that garment would end up being like, you know, $400 (laughs) and it doesn't look, and it doesn't look $400. You know, it's just a basic dress, but it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like a gown. So you can't sell it for 400, you know? So, but I think if we can go direct to consumer with that, then it's almost like I can make my dream come true of natural dyes, you know, which I've been wanting to do forever. So. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's really, really cool. I'm I'm obsessed with it's like surprising when you start to look into natural dyes, the the oh, plants and vegetables that create specific colors. It's kind of surprising, you know. <laughs> it, it's phenomenal, and it's like when I went to see the process in Bali. This was like uh, like a year ago or before COVID. I went to the place that does it, and I was literally like a a kid in a candy shop, like, just like, show me more, you know, just like, (laughs) like, show me more plants, you know, like what color comes from this plant? You know, it was just so fascinating. And their whole like closed loop system around it is so cool. You know, like the way they like recycle the dyes and it, it was just beautiful, you know, that, that like, it's not like all these chemicals Mm -hmm. going into the land. It's just like nature going back to nature, you know? That's amazing. I'm excited for you to debut that collection. Yeah, I'm super excited. So what's the best advice that you would give to someone who's trying to start their own socially responsible clothing line? Because you've been around for a long time now. Like you're, you're the wise elder of doing things the right way. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's I just literally, I like had coffee with my friend this morning who's starting a sustainable line. So I, I was just giving him advice and, you know, I was telling him this and I, I would say this to everyone, like really start small and don't overspend. I think mm-hmm. it's so easy to get caught up in like, oh, but this place does like, you know, this thing and it costs more because it's like, just look at, at the end of the day, what is going to be the result. And mm-hmm. if you can get to that result without spending thousands of dollars, do it because you don't need to spend like even on photo shoots right now, right? Like the iPhone 12 is like, <laughs> I don't even think you need, you know, I don't even think you need the cool Canon camera. You know what, you know what I mean? You like, don't. I seriously, I, uh, you know what? I was like, do I need to get like a fancier camera? And my husband was like, you literally have the top of the line camera in your phone right now. Just no, it's it. crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it, <laughs> it's like, you know, I like, I spent all this money on like great cameras and it's like, uh, no, I don't like, you know, there's so much you can do with like editing and, and fo- like, you don't have to hire a stylist. Like, do you have a friend that's good at styling? I mean, you know, just, just be yeah, totally. resourceful and use like, don't think like you're this big brand already because you're not. And, and it's like, and even if I was a huge brand, like even now, like we, we're not huge, but we're, you know, I still 
think like that, you know? And that's honestly what's kept me. And I was telling my friend, David, I'm like, the only reason I've been in business for 16 years is because I've, I think like that. Like I'm very co- conscious about what I spend and you can make something look like a million bucks without spending that, you know? And, and that's so important. Just like it's all about at the end of the day, like your vision and how you put it together. No one knows the process. So don't think that like to look amazing, you have to spend $10,000 on a photo shoot. You don't, you can spend a thousand or 2000 and still get that $10,000 result, you know? And you have to be that way when you first start you even later, you know, because you don't, it's also with fashion and you know, this like, it's such a wave. It comes in waves and goes. And it's like, you can have a good month and you can have a horrible month the next month. And it's not, it's not like a consistent paycheck. It's just not. And it really isn't like you could do so well and think you're like riding this wave and all of a sudden it just comes crashing down. And then you have to, you have to save for a rainy day because you don't with this business, especially, Mm -hmm. um, you're going to need to like, that's like, Anybody you talk to would probably tell you that, you know, because there are a lot of rainy days. Production can go wrong, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and and you, you got to be strategic in how you spend your money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if this year didn't prove that to anybody. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. There's your proof right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been really interesting to see how some of my friends, I mean, they're weathering the storm and I think they're going to come out better than ever, you know, oh, for and sure. I, I think for that's sure. really cool. I think that times like this really I mean it's unfortunate that this is what it takes but it really brings out everybody's like internal gift for creative problem solving and innovation mm-hmm. I mean I thought about that when I went to get my vaccine I cried because I was like I can't believe we did this you know yeah. thank god for science I, I know mean, right I mean, thank God we live in a place, a country where we can get it. Like there are still countries that don't, I mean, look at what's happening in India right now. It's so, it's horrible. horrible. And we're just so lucky and just being grateful for that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me today. This was such a fun conversation. Oh, yay. That was, it was so fun. Um, I love, I love doing these. These are great. (laughs) I always learn something, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Belinda, for taking the time to talk to me. Just another amazing person that I've met by working on Close Horse, which is kind of the best perk of the job. <laughs> you can find Belinda's line, Belkazan, on Instagram as at Belkazan and at Belkazan.com. And of course, I will include all of that in the show notes. I hope that all of you small business owners, all of you aspiring small business owners, or even all of you who are employees of other businesses were inspired by Belinda's story because she made it happen via a mixture of thriftiness, which I appreciate, compassion, and a tiny bit of luck. What I think is most important to take away from Belinda's story is that, to use that old adage, Rome wasn't built in a day, perfection isn't built in a day. And it might never actually happen. And that's okay because if you're constantly striving for progress, if you're challenging yourself to grow, if you're trying new things, if you keep getting better and better, that's how we change the current landscape 
of profits over people. It's how we can build businesses that prioritize caring for the planet and its people. To quote our anonymous caller again, bad business is a choice. And so is it good business. It's up to us, our community, all of the incredibly talented and passionate people in it. It's up to all of us to ensure that good business becomes the norm and bad business becomes history. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. You know what I'm going to say. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. I also just want to remind you that we are still doing our Uyghur Lives Matter challenge here. What is that? It means that every day, tweet at five major global brands, or you can comment on the Instagram of five major brands. Choose your social media platform, whatever your favorite is, and ask them, what are you doing to ensure there is no Uyghur forced labor in your supply chain? And follow that with the hashtag Uyghur Lives Matter. I've been doing it. It's so easy. And it gets so exciting when people retweet or like my comments. So I know people are seeing this and they're thinking like, what are they talking about? I want to know more. And that's why this can be really beneficial. Like on the obvious level, it reminds retailers that we care, but also other people see it and they get interested in what we're talking about. And you know, knowledge is power. To really use our power, to grow our power, we need to educate the people around us and bring them into the fold. So please take the Uyghur Lives Matter challenge this week. I just did a really great post, if I do say so myself, on Instagram that really breaks down the situation with the Uyghurs. And I think it's a great tool that you can share with people in your social circle who might not know about this because it's not getting the attention it deserves. It's time that we take matters into our own hands. And please share screenshots of your tweets and comments in your stories and tag me or send them to me via DM so I can share them with the rest of the community and get everyone excited about doing it. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And every Friday, well, except for the last two Fridays, I've been doing an Instagram Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time where I update you on some blog stuff and answer your questions about this week's episodes. And I promise this Friday I'm going to be doing it. Uh, we have a really big episode coming out next Sunday that I want to talk about. And I want to take your questions about Uyghurs, about the Uyghur Lives Matter Challenge, about all the other stuff we've been talking about on social media and here on the pod. So I will see you Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners in the meantime, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll link to that in, in the show notes. And you know what I'm going to say next. Please check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We just finished a great series on internet dating, and we have a lot of cool stuff coming up. So you'll want to check that out. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.